the Beatles had this chant, John, Paul and George, and probably then Stuart and Pete had this chant when things weren't going well, which in their world wasn't very often because mostly it was an upward trajectory, but nonetheless, sometimes you know, they would have a bad night or the gig would, you know, didn't work properly or the amps broke or whatever. I say, where are we going, fellas? And they'd go, to the top, Johnny. And I'd say, where's that, fellas? And they say, to the toppermost of the poppermost. And I'd say, right. And we'd all sort of cheer up. Where are we going, Johnny? Straight to the top, boys. Oh, yeah? Where's that? The toppermost of the poppermost. Welcome to October of 1963. I'm Ed Chan. I'm Kid O'Toole. And I'm Martin Quivell. October of 63, we are introduced to another member of the Brian Epstein stable, the very first and only woman who would be part of NEMS, at least as part of NEMS as far as a recording artist. Yes, indeed. The great Soul Black. She'll be our feature for this episode. We're going to be talking a bit about her position in uh, Brian Epstein's stable and her first hit, which was uh, written by a certain Lennon and McCartney. And we'll also talk about her second hit, which was written by Burt Backrack and Hal David. She would actually record a couple of their songs and really uh, show what a powerful, powerful vocalist she was, because their songs are not easy to sing. We start in 1943, a little bit younger than George, one Priscilla Maria Veronica White. Yes, White. So that's her uh, birth name. And she knew she always wanted to be famous and became part of the trendy music club crowd and wanted to get her foot in the door. And she did that by going to the in clubs of the time, like the Iron Door, the Zodiac, and a certain place that we all know and love called the Cavern, where she also worked as a coat check girl. Yeah, apparently her friends would always call up to the stage and say, hey, hey, let Scylla sing. And what was interesting about her was that, of course, she was influenced by the music scene, you know, Warriors from the Hurricanes and the Searchers and Billy J. Kramer and the Beatles. But she was also just as interested in R&B. She has talked about before that she would listen to the Miracles and other records that were coming in from the docks, the Canard Yanks and so forth. So she was just as interested in R&B as she was in the emerging British rock scene. So as the 18-year-old girl at the Cavern Club, this would be 1961, the Beatles were just back from Hamburg. They were really just kind of starting to build their careers in Liverpool, and that was when Scylla was allowed to get up and sing a song with them. John Lennon in particular, he's quoted as saying, well, wait a minute, this isn't some bloody talent show. <laughs> <laughs> but he still let her up on the stage. Yep, but she was starting to gain some attention as she started frequenting all the, these clubs and getting on stage and singing with various bands. Her first real paid gig was at the Zodiac with a band that we've talked about on this show before, the Big Three, who at the time were considered to be the best band in Liverpool. You know, she earned herself the nickname Swinging Scylla. 
Yep, swinging Scylla. Obviously, John Lennon changed his mind about her. As she got better and better, he supposedly said, that's Cyril. Cyril, I love it. I guess that's John, you know, is one to watch. <laughs> it was in the premiere issue of Mersey Beat on July 6th, 1961, that Bill Harry, you know, Bill Harry was not good with names, was he? No. <laughs> Paul McArtry, anybody? Yep. Bless his heart. <laughs> so he had an article about Scylla in that very first issue of Mersey Beat, and, well, he called her Scylla Black. That ended up working out for her. The name stuck. So, finally, she was able to secure an audition with Brian Epstein. Unfortunately, though, it didn't quite go the way she had planned. Yeah, apparently there were two girl singers that Brian was looking at. Not only Cyril, but <laughs> Beryl Marsden. Beryl Marsden, who is no relation to Jerry, by the way. No. And she would go on to have a bit of a career in the music industry. But John went ahead and convinced Brian, okay, you know, you should really listen to this girl. And they set up a showcase. Exactly. And with the Beatles backing her up. And she wanted to sing Summertime. The Gershwin song. Uh, the Gershwin song, of course. Unfortunately, though, according to Scylla, and she talked about this later, the Beatles didn't think it was necessary to rehearse. That sounds like John Lennon. He yeah. said, oh, it'll be fine. We'll figure it out. And that was a big problem because when they started the audition, they didn't play in her key. She immediately realized it, and they didn't adjust the key for her. And so she was trying to just go with it and sing, and I guess it just sounded terrible. And well, I, I guess Brian did ended up not signing either of them at this point in time. And we should mention that the date of this is in question, but it would seem to be probably late 1962 or early 1963. So along the Beatles timeline, Love Me Do was out, Please Please Me was maybe just out the single. They weren't the Beatles' national favorites just yet, so... Right. So they thought, well, that's it. You know, she thought, I blew it. But months later, Brian happened to be in the audience at the Blue Angel in Liverpool, one of its clubs that I'm sure many have heard of. A jazz club, actually. And she was performing there uh, several months later. And Brian saw her there. And clearly, she was having a much better show. And he was then convinced of her talent and signed her. This would certainly be later in the year. The date typically given is September the 6th, 1963, which is absolutely the day that Brian signed Scylla to a contract. But people think that that show was on that day because it's like, oh, he signed her that very evening. I yeah. don't know if we can say that or not. Yeah, that's impossible to tell. But certainly shortly after that performance, we can say that. What George Martin says about it would fit in with your assumption that it wasn't late 63. George Martin said that it was early 1963 when Brian Epstein brought Scylla in to see George. Timeline-wise, it would seem December of 62 for the audition. Several months go by, so we're going into spring, maybe early summer of 63, and then Brian would see her. And whether it was that night or not, he certainly was keeping his eye on her at that point. And it may be as late as September that he actually signed her up to the contract. It, we were talking about it before we, we started recording this, that the timelines are all over the place 
in different sources. It's it's kind of frustrating. So, you know, we're we're making educated guesses in a way. We know for a fact that 61 is when she was playing with the Beatles and Jerry and the Pacemakers and the Big Three at the Cavern and other Liverpool clubs. And then in through the late 61 into 62 was where she was basically honing her chops. And then by late 62, by the point the Beatles had become established, which was Brian Epstein. And, you know, they were in with the record company enough that Brian could conceivably bring in other artists. I mean, you know, how long did it take for Brian to bring in Jerry? Uh, not sure. October to like February. Mm-hmm. So this would have been after Jerry. George Martin says early 63. I think we can fudge and say as late as uh, July, August, but it's definitely not early September because, well, this is October and her single is out. It would have been kind of a rush to bring her in, get the song recorded, and get it out all within six weeks. Now, what's important to note here is that, you know, she was the first woman to be signed to Epstein's group. Pretty exciting thing for her. So the next step was to find a song to suit that incredible voice of hers. We don't know whether she would immediately take Love of the Loved or she would ask them to give her Love of the Loved, but the word is that she was not part of the arranging of it. I read that she was not thrilled with the arrangement of Love of the Loved, that she heard the original demo that I think Paul did, and that she said she really like that, and that when she arrived to the studio, and Paul was there, I guess, during the recording of Love of the Loved, and that she was disappointed that it was this, as she put it, a jazzy brass sound. She said she really was not expecting that. But, of course, she was in no position to argue, and so she recorded it as Paul and George Martin wanted it. Yeah, well, I mean, not only had she heard the demo, she'd been around. I'm sure she'd heard the Beatles doing it at the Cavern any number of times. Absolutely. She mentioned that in this interview, that she'd heard it that way, too. And so she just walked in assuming that's how she was going to record it as well, and uh, that didn't happen. We listened to it, and to, to the song Love of the Loved, and in some ways, I can see why George Martin actually said at the time to Brian that he thought it might have fit uh, Shirley Bassey more because it's got that big sound to it. And I can sort of see where George was coming from with that idea. I can see with this big brass arrangement he did that Shirley Bassey could have done this. But Sola Black had a big voice as well. She obviously became a big star in Britain and not so much here. Um, you know, here in America. And so I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about how big a star she became in Britain, what she meant to you over there, since, as I said, we can't really speak to that here. Before I let Martin go off on this, Bill Harry recently posted what in the States would probably be an Onion article. (laughs) I think it's a joke, but I cannot say for certain. Apparently there were or are plans to have a statue of Scylla straddling the River Mersey. Oh, dear. (laughs) You haven't seen those photos. No, I have not. This this was an actual proposal that seems to have been made for a giant Scylla to be in a Peter Pan outfit, which apparently she had a history of playing Peter Pan. 
Oh, no. Oh, yes. Oh. In pantomime, yes, she played Peter Pan. Yes. It is in a paper which reports news rather than just like The Onion, which will go for the joke. Yeah, right. Uh, I do believe that someone has made this proposal. She is, well, straddling the River Mersey. <laughs> and boats going underneath it can look oh, up. Oh, that is awful. Oh, my God. I mean, I'm all for a statue, but no. No, no, no. And she would be looking down on the Beatles statues in Brian. <laughs> anyway, um, all right. Well, oh, well, man. I hope she's wearing underwear. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god um i can't believe i just said that yeah. Um, yeah before brian passed away he did a huge favor for her in a sense because he arranged for her to start making her own television special and from there her career mate became more of a television personality more than a musical personality then and she was really popular with that sort of television special type of thing where you'd have her on there with special guests coming on doing songs magic acts some comedy acts would show up on there and eventually that would lead to her doing like shows or almost reality like uh she was the presenter of the series blind date which was based on the american show the dating game and then she had another program called Surprise Surprise that came out after that that she developed. And that was all about things like where people would ask for certain things. I'd like to meet this person or I'd like to find out about this. And she'd make it happen or try to make it happen. And some of the best moments of that were where because this is the era before the Internet as such, she would arrange it so that people who had lost touch with families who had moved abroad to, say, Australia or Canada or somewhere, and they'd be able to get reunited because they'd lost touch over the years, and she got them to come over to England. They'd be sat down, and it was the first of those shows where they'd suddenly come from behind stage and walk on stage, and it'd be like the reunion of these families that have lost touch and that sort of show. So, But she was really huge on television during that, like the 80s, the 90s, up until her sad end, really. Did she continue to sing at all, or was it She did. She even did all the theme tunes for all of the shows that she did as well, and she'd always do a song and a musical number in each of those shows as well. Well, not the dating game variant, but that surprise, surprise, she did, and the television specials, definitely. And she did continue to release the odd occasional record every now and then as well. Okay. Well, and, and as we noted, she did her own cover of Photograph, the Ringo song. She did, yeah. She continued to hang out with really all four Beatles, less John, because, well, John was in the States for a lot of the 70s, but right. uh, very much George, Ringo, and Paul at various times. Notably, she was on the yacht that George and Ringo were writing Photograph. Mm-hmm. They finished the song. It's like, oh, yeah, I really like that. And Scylla had the guts to go up to them. Can I have that one? I really like it. No, we're keeping that for ourselves. <laughs> yep. <Wow>. Sorry, Cyril. <laughs> Cyril. Well, that's cool. I, I just wanted to ask about that because, as I said, you know, she wasn't as known here. So I, I definitely wanted to, you know, find out more about her career in Britain. So that's great. Finishing out the George Martin and Cilla Black story in the 90s and to prove that they were all really still happy to see each other whenever they did. George Martin and Scylla were invited to and went to one of Paul's shows, I believe, in Paris. Yes, and they went backstage, and she said how wonderful it was to see each other, and they 
spent a long time reminiscing about old times, and they had dinner afterwards and flew back to England in Paul's jet. Yeah, that must be nice. While we were looking up details for this, I discovered that there are no Scylla Black podcasts. Well, and that's true, but, you know, with how busy everyone is, how would someone start a Scylla Black podcast? Well, as Ringo said, with the washing and the cooking, you know. Right. Well, I'm sorry we can't be there in person, you know, to do this show, but everybody's busy these days with the washing and the cooking. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, when we started coming up with Toppermost the Poppermost, we were thinking exactly the same thing. And as we were experienced with online recording through Zencaster, we looked at what the service provided in their own podcast hosting services. And uh, already through our experiences of using online recording with Zencaster for the show When They Was Fab, which Ed has presented for many years now, we were already aware of their ability to provide separate recordings for each participant, which is helpful all of which are recorded on each person's own devices in order to cut down on any signal degradation. Separate recordings are a good thing because then if anybody's levels are lower than somebody else's, you can equalise these and it works better for editing that way. Martin knows. Martin is the man who hosts the podcast on podcasts. Uh, One thing I do want to mention, just recently they have added phones, both iPhone and Android, to the devices which are compatible with Zencaster, and and that has already been very helpful to us. So the automated editing on Zencaster is helpful, even though we do more editing afterwards. Yeah, believe it or not, folks, we do actually go in and cut down these shows. As with a few services, it places the episodes onto all your streaming platforms. That's the other thing about Zencaster now, is they are also the host for this podcast. And their online diagnostics are very easy to use. With recording processes and editing services provided, you have everything you need to create, edit, and distribute your podcast every step of the way at an affordable price. And it's easy to get started. All you have to do is go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use the code TOPPERMOST and you'll get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. We want you to have the same easy experiences that we do for all our podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story. All right, on to the charts for October of 1963. As we come off of September, She Loves You is still at number one, although it would actually only be at number one for the first week of the month. It would go from number one to number three, and it would stay at number three until the last week, where it would rise back again to number two. Not to spoil things too much, but She Loves You will rise back again to the top of the charts. You know, it would be out of the number one slot for five or six weeks, and then it would go back. That's really amazing, and that shows you where the Beatles were at. That's very unusual. At number two was the Brian Poole and the Tremolos, Do You Love Me? And that would rise to number one, and it would stay at number one for three weeks, and then fall to number three. I guess Decca wasn't too bad off. They didn't get the Beatles, but at least they got some hits. <laughs> at number three was Then He Kissed Me by The Crystals, which would rise to number two and then fall to five and nine. At number five, Trini Lopez's If I Had a Hammer. At number 12, the Buddy Holly song Wishing, which would stay around during the month of October, going from 12 to 10 to 15 to 16 to 23. At number 15, Bad to Me by Billy J and the Dakotas. Again, a song which has been around on the charts for a little while. 
15 to 21 to 24 to 27 to 50, at which point we just drop out of the charts. At number 18, a song we spoke of last month, another Lennon-McCartney song, Hello Little Girl by The Foremost, which would go from number 18 to number 14 to number 11 to number 9 and number 12. And we did find a little bit more information about Hello Little Girl we wanted to present to you. Brian Epstein, when he first went to see George Martin and had that acetate, it included Hello Little Girl. Interestingly, he marked the record in pen as Hello Little Girl. With a U. You, I love that. (laughs) (laughs) And also on the acetate was Till There Was You, I should mention, from their Deco audition. And it was interestingly also credited to Paul McCartney and the Beatles. On one side, Hello Little Girl was by John Lennon and the Beatles. Yeah, very interesting. In March of 2016, one of those acetates actually showed up. Les McGuire of Jerry and the Pacemakers had one and sold it for 77,500 pounds when it was listed as possibly going for 10,000. So he got over eight times what the estimated auction price was. Not surprised at all. All right. At number 25, Tommy Rowe with Everybody. Listening to it, this is a song I actually knew more than I thought I knew. Me too. Yeah. It's like, oh, okay. I didn't realize that was that song. It's at number 25 here. It would go to number 16, number 9, number 11, and number 15. Wow. Yeah, this Mm. is one of those songs, as soon as it started, you know, as it was going, I'm like, oh, I've heard this. I like it. I think it's a solid pop song. like the acoustic guitar riff at the beginning. It's catchy. I like his vocals on this, the falsetto, you know, when he sings the blues. You know, it's a earworm for sure. We've discussed the Chris Montez and Tommy Rowe tour, but... Apparently, Tommy Rowe started writing it on John's Gibson. Yep, that explains why it's catchy. (laughs) (laughs) It's all in the guitar. It's all in the guitar. I I wouldn't be surprised if John probably helped him out maybe a little bit while they were writing it. They were still buddies at that point. Yeah, he said that they really hit it off. He called John his drinking buddy for a time that John was showing him around the pubs and they were just hanging out and that John let Tommy borrow his guitar to write songs. And Tommy apparently started writing everybody on John's Gibson, which recently sold at an auction for $2,500,000. The quote I like out of that interview was Tommy Rose saying that, well, he introduces Georgia boy to Guinness. <laughs> I can imagine what a good son of Georgia would have thought of choking down that dark beer. (laughs) A man after my own heart. (laughs) (laughs) All right. At number 26, Come On is still there, but it is starting to slide down the charts. Do you think we're ever going to hear from these Rolling Stones again? Eh, I don't know. I don't know. It's at number 26 this week. 
it would stay around for a little bit at number 30, then number 29, then number 42, and then, well, we'll have to see whether they ever show up again. Yeah, they're kind of upstarts. <laughs> at number 27, uh, George Martin production from an artist that we spoke of at the top of the show, Shirley Bassey with I Who Have Nothing. I, I who have nothing. No one must watch you go dancing by, wrapped in the arms of somebody else, darling, his own, who loves you. That voice. Yes. Well, and the production on this song, it is so gorgeous. Yep, it's got George Martin written all over it, doesn't it? That arrangement, it's so tasteful, never overwhelms her. But also an incredible arrangement that he's done for it as well. All the instrumentation is beautiful. I agree, the arrangement is just top-notch here. Dame Shirley Bassey, as she is now, would go on to have a long and successful career. She would do three separate Bond themes, and the one she's probably most known for is Goldfinger. Yep. That's the first word that comes to mind when I see the name Shirley Bassey's Goldfinger. Mm-hmm. She it. Yeah. <laughs> the thing about Goldfinger, George Martin is credited as the producer, and it is usually credited as being it recorded at Abbey Road. And that's because Jimmy Page, who was actually the guitarist on that session, has a story about Shirley Bassey holding that long note at the end of Goldfinger and passing out at the end of it. Oh, yes, I've read that. But Jimmy Page says this was recorded at Abbey Road, but according to Mary McCartney, there is no evidence of it actually having been recorded at Abbey Road, and she thinks it was probably recorded at another studio. Hmm. I don't know. It's possible that they might have just not have the details there of it being recorded there. I mean, it's possible. Um, hmm. you know, I don't know. The recent Abbey Road book reprints all of those stories, and it does not not claim that it's in Abbey Road. But you know, Mary says, "Well, we have no evidence of it." I mean, that's that's one of the revelations which came out of uh, if these walls could talk. Hmm. I mean, I don't, I don't think. Yeah, I don't think George was working anywhere else at that point, was he? He'd not already moved on. No, but he did apparently spend some time in other studios. I mean, we, you know, we talked about him working with some of the other subsidiary labels and occasionally, I guess they would lend producers out. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. I mean, it's Shirley Bassey, it's Bond. And even as early as that was in the Bond film series, it was a big deal. It wouldn't have been in studio two, which is where they usually mentioned it. It probably would have been in studio three. You would have had to have the whole orchestra there. Oh yeah. Yeah. I who have nothing. This not only was one of her earliest hits, but it was her, became her signature tune. I think she performed the song at almost every concert she's given. My uh, parents saw her in Las Vegas in the 60s. I'm guessing it's around like 66, and I'm guessing it's at the Sahara, because she seemed to play the Sahara quite a bit. And they said she was fabulous. What a voice. 
Yeah, it's a real shame the Sahara has been torn down, you know? Yeah, it really is. Vegas, obviously, is completely different than what it was in the 60s. I'm so glad I got to visit, and I got to go up into the Beatles room at the Sahara. Oh, uh, that's so cool. That's been 10 years now, so. All right, at number 28, Somebody Else's Girl by Billy Fury. It would be both on the rise and the fall this month. It would jump from 28 to 18 to 19, and then fall back down to 24 and 31. Not one of Billy Fury's best. I agree 100%. Is this just a game you've been playing? Can it be? Please tell me. Can't you see I've got to know? Am I building on my world? Round somebody else's a typical teen idol kind of song of the time i mean which again is a little bit different than what he'd given us before yeah it was more on the croony side and with the strings okay we'll get our apologies out of the way sorry billy fury (laughs) fans (laughs) but this just was not memorable not a great track for him i don't know what do you think martin i didn't mind the song too much the only thing i thought about it was It felt more like late 50s than 1963. Kudos to the fact that it's written by the great Bob Montgomery, who wrote Misty Blue, which is Mm -hmm. a classic, and he co-wrote Heartbeat and other songs with Buddy Holly. I just think that it would have fitted that era better than 1963. Second-rate Paul Anka. That's a really good point, Martin. I think that it sounds dated. Sorry, Ken Michaels, I know you hate that word, but... Yeah, I agree with you. This sounds dated for its time. You know, the lyrics, building my world around somebody else's girl. and It just sounds very typical teenage love song. I mean, I don't know. I I just think that's a really good point. Maybe that's what bothered me about it, that it does sound kind of like it should have been from the late 50s. I think you hit the nail on the head. Second-rate Paul Anka, and we do have to remember, She Loves You was at the top of the charts. Why would anyone want to listen to this? (laughs) Yep. All right, at number 31, It's Love That Really Counts by the Mersey Beats. Again, it would kind of just hang around here. 31 to 26 to 27 to 26 to 28. At number 32, there's the previous song from our buddy, and we're going to see him again in this month, Confessing by Frank Ifield here. It's just about having the end of its day 32 here 38 the next week and it would drop off at number 33 sweets for my sweet by the searchers again kind of at the end of its run it's 33 it's 47 and it would drop off at number 34 our old buddy joe brown with a song called sally ann which would go from 34 to 33 to 28 to 35 to 40 george's brother So give me your heart, Sally Ann Found not to part, Sally Ann I love you, yes I do, oh so true You got a way of walking, you got a way of talking And a cute way of looking at me I cannot leave Joe Brown here without saying that when I was looking stuff up, I found something which I wrote almost exactly 20 years ago, believe it or not, uh, in October of 
2003, where there was a question about whether the Beatles and Joe Brown and his brothers uh, ever actually played together, and they did. There are two evenings on July 26th and July 27th that they played together at Cambridge Hall and the Tower Ballroom. Wow. At the time, Brown stood at number three in the charts with a picture of you, one of Brian Epstein's favorite pop records, and also a new feature of the Beatles' own stage act sung by George. Wow. And, of course, we know the Beatles liked picture review as well. They covered it, obviously. Exactly. The other note on there was that Joe Brown and the Brothers played Stella McCartney's 18th birthday party in 1989. That's kind of cool, you know? Yeah. As far as the song goes, I didn't think it really showcased his great guitar playing that much. Mm. I wanted to hear more of that. I mean, at the beginning, it had a slight skiffle feel to it, I thought. I mean, a little bit with that rhythmic acoustic guitar. But as I said, I wanted to hear more guitar from him because, you know, we know what a great player he is. But what's there is really good. Yeah, it's good, but I wanted to hear more. And lyrics, you know, not great. Just overall, I just feel like we've heard better from him. So, you know, I see it wasn't a huge hit, and I can kind of see why. Sorry, Joe Brown fans. <laughs> we can't forget about the brothers. You, you think the brothers have fans of their own? Yeah, were the brothers successful on their own, uh, Martin, or were they just pretty much with Joe Brown? I, I guess we might find out. Who knows? Yes, I know. Oh, okay. Oh, little teaser. Okay. <laughs> All right. At number 40, the Brian Poole and the Tremolos twist and shout, making its way out of the charts. At number 43, Ken Dodd still... So is it number 43 here? It would rise just a little bit to 35, 36, 39, and 37. At number 45, the introduction of a new band who in some circles would become rivals to the Beatles, Dave Clark with his cover of Do You Love Me? It would fall from 45 to 50 and then rise to 33, 30, and 36 in the ensuing weeks. Yeah, it was interesting how many covers there were of Do You Love Me not that long after the original came out. And then, of course, we had Brian Poole and the Tremblers, and now we have this on such tight succession. I, of course, as we talked about last time with Brian Poole and the Tremblers, do I prefer the original? Yes. But I've always loved Dave Clark Five's drumming. I still prefer the original to this, but it was interesting when the single first came out, the reviews of it, New Musical Express described it as a strong rival version to the Tremolos without being quite as good, but it's a near thing. Like, wow, that's kind of backhanded praise. And uh, Cashbox described it as a pull out all the stops pounder already busting loose on the charts and i will say again the drum roll at the beginning and everything i do like that but other than that doesn't really hold a candle to the contours but it is better than the brian Poole version at least there's something original in this one and it has a bit more energy and you talk about the drumming we have to mention the abbey road outtake where ringo is playing those heavy drums and is it john or is it paul says what are you trying to be dave clark here (laughs) yep they got it 
And Dave Clark would, of course, show up at various times throughout the Beatles and beyond career. Notably, he would purchase the entire Ready Steady Go back catalog and... That included the Around the Beatles special. Dave Clark is the reason why we have those videotapes from the late 1980s. Oh, wow. Did not know that. Beyond that, he was behind Julian Lennon's cover of Time. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you ever heard that. It's a really nice record, actually. Mm. Well, he was behind the whole uh, musical, wasn't he, that it came from? That, that also yes, featured, yes, exactly. Uh, also featured Freddie Mercury and other people as well. And then, as mentioned, and we will cover more as we go through these charts for a time in the 60s, and certainly you look at those teen magazines from the States in 64, it's always going to be for at least half a year, is it the Beatles or is it the Dave Clark Five? Is it the Beatles or is it the Dave, you know, once they got past Jerry as their main rival, Dave Clark seemed to take over that role. Wow. All right, at number 49, you know, we're talking about Ken Dodd having a serious single. Here's Harry Seacombe of The Goons with If I Ruled the World. It's at number 49 here, and it would be at number 44 the next week. This has a very interesting story. If I Rule the World is, uh, of course, originally from a West End musical from the same year called uh, Pickwick which was based on Charles Dickens' Pickwick Papers. There's no doubt about it, is there? Harry has a fine voice. He likes to sing serious songs. The trouble is keeping him serious when he's singing them. I remember once giving the introduction to a Puccini aria four times while Harry tried to get his breath back. He'd been putting so much fun into the, the sketch before, you know, just like you've seen now, that he really couldn't sing at all. <laughs> Have you got your breath back now? Yeah, just about. Got your stick? Yes, there is. Oh, you got your lightning conductor. <laughs> well, you're all right for best tonight. Oh, yes, I've got an oxygen tent at the sign. <laughs> it's hopeless, isn't it? But the song I've asked Harry to sing tonight comes from the musical Mr. Pickwick. And many of us think that the character of Pickwick, as conceived by Dickens, is so very similar to Harry's own personality. Harry is just that one person. So now, if you're ready, Harry, will you sing the song Mr. Pickwick sings in the show? And it's called, If I Rule the World. released as a single and was a big hit. This became his signature song. And he was in a number of musicals, actually, because as you can hear, he had quite a voice. This sort Although he was of, a better comedian than he was a singer. But still, pretty dramatic voice. And Pickwick also toured in the States, and he was nominated for a Tony for his role in the musical. New York News drama critic John Chapman reviewing Harry Seacombe's performance in the new Broadway musical hit Pickwick. The 46th Street Theater said, Pickwick 
was worth waiting for. And now that it's here, it mustn't leave for a year or a three. Ladies and gentlemen, here is the English star of Pickwick, Harry Seacombe, in a scene from his hit show. Though I may not be the world's physician, by nature I'm of modest disposition. Suppose you chose, instead of men like those, men like these, <laughs> and these men who want a world that's fine and free. Men like Nelson, Wellington, and Drake, and me. Proud to see, and if I had the chance, I know just how it would be. If I rule the world, every day would be the first day of spring. This was not the only version of the song. And in fact, this other version is the one I'm more familiar with. Tony Bennett would record this song two years later and would have a number 34 hit with it. A minor um, hit, yeah. Yeah, so it wasn't as big a hit as this was in the UK, but he would go on to sing it for years in his concerts. He loved this song. And in 2006, he came out with the first of two duets albums and he did a duet with celine dion on this song i prefer his solo version of it if the day ever dawned when i ruled the I have always loved this song. So I was fascinated to hear this version because, as I said, I was familiar with the Tony Bennett version, which I just adore. It's a beautiful song, beautiful lyrics, very moving. So this was really interesting to hear this version. Well, and the influence of Harry Seacombe and the whole goons on John Lennon and the Beatles cannot be underestimated. That's for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. He would be responsible for the Ying Tong song, which, as we know... Both John, Paul, and George would spontaneously break into it various times. Yep. I still do that myself. <laughs> I do. <laughs> I mean, it's very much a precursor of the sort of thing we would get from the scaffold later in the 60s. All right. Yes. I'd like to sing for you. Yesterday, all my troubles seem so far away. So we move on to the second week in October. October the 10th, as mentioned, She Loves You had fallen to number three. And hot on the heels of She Loves You, Jerry has his next single, which, apologies to Jerry and the Pacemakers fans, this single and Fairy Cross the Mersey are the songs that people 
no Jerry for. The song is You'll Never Walk Alone. It's uh, number 22. It would shoot up to number seven, then number two, and number one. We were talking about fast songs into chart positions and then fast rises. Here's one of those. And it's probably even more popular today because it's, well, the Liverpool football song. Yes, I was wondering. I'm sorry I keep acting like, well, you're the British person here, so you have to speak <laughs> for all. This <laughs> sounds terrible. But you can obviously speak to this better than we can because You'll Never Walk Alone has such meaning in England, even more than here. So can you talk a bit about how this song has had such meaning in uh, England? Um I'm not much of a soccer person, actually, but I do know that this song was used for charity as well at one point. I don't know what to say, really, because I prefer their more upbeat songs, if I'm being honest. But that's just mm-hmm. me personally. Which is interesting, because like you say, Fairy Across the Mersey is also kind of a slow song. And you ask anyone who is not absolutely a big Beatles fan, those are the two Jerry songs they might know. Mm-hmm. They are. I do think the football thing is... The thing that brings it to the fore for most people is because, you know, football or soccer is such a big thing in this country. that. So I think that might be one of the reasons why. But I think it fits with the whole music hall because people sing along to it. So Mm. you've got that possibility as well where that's a big thing in British history that it's the sing-along and almost like the people on this person on the stage, you have to sing along and that sort of thing. So perhaps that's the other thing that brings it more to the fore for Brits as well. That's a fascinating point. I think you're right. Apparently this is a tradition at the beginning of the matches of singing You'll Never Walk Alone, and yep, everybody sings. Yeah, I think every team has a song, and you know something goes on. And in quite possibly the one and only time I'm going to apologize to Beatles fans on this show... Oh, no! In eight days a week, we see the soccer crowd singing She Loves You. The music the crowd sings is the music that Liverpool has sent echoing around the world. is a better football song sorry (laughs) sorry sorry beatles fans out there including myself oh man just wait till the next beatle fest (laughs) (laughs) but yeah it's just fascinating to me how jerry the pacemaker's version of you'll never walk alone has taken on this other meaning
It's a Rodgers and Hammerstein composition from uh, the musical Carousel. And Jerry and the Pacemakers definitely put their own stamp on it to the point where when uh, Jerry Marsden passed, Paul tweeted his condolences and he said his unforgettable performances of You'll Never Walk Alone and Ferry Across the Mersey remain in many people's hearts as reminders of a joyful time in British music. So even he pulled that song out too. Oh, we'll, we'll have a story about Ferry Cross the Mersey when we get to it. Yes, I love that song, but we'll get to that later. <laughs> All right. At number 25, Chuck Berry's Let It Rock in Memphis. I find it interesting how, you know, we've now seen this several times. They would pull two old songs from 50s rockers and put them together on a single and they would chart. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, particularly in the UK. Predominantly the UK. Is this the first mm. time it's hit the UK charts, this song? Apparently so. It had been released as a single before, but... Yeah, it's wow. kind of odd. Let It Rock or Johnny Be Good Part 2. <laughs> yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> in the heat of the day down in Mobile, Alabama Working on the railroad with a steel driving hammer I gotta get some money, buy some brand new shoes At number 28, the Dave Barry and the Cruisers cover of Memphis. At number 42, Bo Diddley with Pretty Thing. Now, Bo Diddley, while he liked the Beatles, he said they weren't rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. I think that's more of a you kids get off my lawn kind of, <laughs> kind of comment. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell it's Bo Diddley from the guitar straight away, though, can't you? Oh. You pretty thing. Bo Diddley beat. Yes. Oh, yeah. It, it must have been a boring job being Bo's drummer. You know, it's like, okay, one beat, that's all you're ever going to play. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and this time we're going to add an harmonica. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and this was actually co written by Willie Dixon, who's Chicago blues legend. Oh, yes. So. Got to get my Chicago reference in there. And this was actually yet another Chicago reference, I should add. Um, it was recorded at Chess Studios. It's not my favorite Bo Diddley song, but it's the blues and it's unmistakably, as you said, Martin, the Bo Diddley sound. If anybody's after a really interesting uh, rabbit hole, Willie Dixon is one heck of a good rabbit hole to go down. Yes, indeed. I agree. That guy has written so many classic songs of the blues. And despite Bo Diddley's comments, Paul wouldn't hold it against them. Paul would cover Cracking Up, which they also did and sort of did in the Get Back sessions. So Paul wasn't too upset over what Bo Diddley said. No. Yeah, it didn't mean Diddley. Yep. Oh, well done, sir. I guess you don't know this, but when Bo Jackson was playing two sports, Nike had a commercial which included (laughs) Bo. It's Bo knows this and Bo knows that, and then it ended with Bo don't know Diddley. With with Bo Diddley actually saying that. I remember that. 
Bow knows baseball. Bow knows football. Bow knows basketball, too. Bow knows tennis? Number 43, Peter, Paul, and Mary's cover of Blowing in the Wind. It's good. I mean, we've talked oh, about yeah, it. Oh, yeah, it's a classic. Okay. But notice it's still a little bit of this more, and I'm not putting them down at all in saying this, it's more the commercial folk version. of. It's a, certainly a protest song, but this is done in this more pop version of folk. It's, you know, the harmonies, the smoother kind of sound. I mean, you know, Bob Dylan's version is Bob Dylan. It probably was not as big a hit as this version was. This is more typical, as we've been talking about in many of our episodes, this folk pop kind of sound. The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. At number 49, The Searcher's new song, Sweet Nothings. Not my favorite of the Searcher songs. No. It's got some good harmonies in there, and it, this is fairly standard Mersey beat, I would say. kind of like this. I thought it had a kind of a raw sound to it. Thought, I mean, it's not lyrically the best, although I should point out it's actually a cover of a Brenda Lee song, Sweet Nothings. It sounds very different. Sweet nothing. sassy i like her <laughs> okay she's my big discovery of this show maybe i was too hard on her in the past she's spicy and in fact this is a name you probably would never think i'd bring up on this show but i found out when researching this song i found out that kanye west sampled that song <laughs> oh uh-huh, because there's a part of it at the very beginning, because, of course, the song is about whispering sweet nothings in your ear, and you hear this voice at the beginning, of course, whispering something, and Brenda Lee says, uh-huh, honey, like that. <laughs> and I suddenly am like, oh, my God, where have I heard that? And I realize it's a Kanye West song called Bound 2 that came out. That phrase is heard throughout the song, so he sampled Brenda Lee. <laughs> uh huh, honey. All right. Uh huh, honey. 
What you doing in the club on a Thursday? She said she only here for a girl birthday. They order champagne, but still look thirsty. Rock forever 21, but just turned 30. I know I got a bad reputation. Walk around, always mad reputation. Very cool. Wow. So I know that has nothing to do with the Beatles, but I almost dropped the laptop when I heard that. I thought, you've got to be kidding me. That's kick making as relative to the kids now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know I'm all about the kids. That's, That's right. And and so back to the Searchers version, this is a banger. I like this one. <laughs> okay, you like it more than I do. You know, I don't dislike it. I just find it a little bit so-so. Yeah, it's not their all-time best, but I like the raw sound of it. I like the live sound. It'd be a nice so. B-side. All right, so the next week, October the 17th, She Loves You was still at number three. You'll Never Walk Alone was at number seven. Again, that quick rise we spoke of. At number 11 was The Foremost with Hello, Little Girl. At number 24 was Bad to Me. At number 29 was Come On. At number 32 was a tremendous song, Be My Baby by the Ronettes. You know, we've talked about the ultimate girl group song, This Is It. This Is It. Or certainly one of them. Yep. It's the ultimate girl group song, and it's the ultimate Phil Spector production. It doesn't get much better. And actually, I just finished teaching a class. It's the first part of the history of the British invasion. And Ed and Martin were kind enough to join me for part of this class. And we just talked a bit about this song and about the production of it and how Phil Spector was able to use that patented wall sound production style he had. You hear it from the beginning, the drums that come in that boom, 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 bam. It's unmistakable. Hal Blaine, of course, the Wrecking Crew playing that, and Ronnie Spector, unmistakable voice, the orchestra when it comes in, everything about this is just big. And we have to credit Jack Nishi on that as well. I of mean, course. We've seen him before on this Exactly. So, but, but he was a big part of this record. What can we say about the Ronettes and the Beatles? The Ronnie Less Ronettes would be on the 66 tour. And really just shortly after, I guess while they were promoting this record, they would come over to England and that would start a relationship which would last well into the 70s. Indeed. So they're... Beatles connections there. Obviously, Phil Spector had connections with John and George. 
And John and Phil Spector would record a cover of Be My Baby for the rock and roll album. Oh, that's right. I've got a story about this song. Okay. Wait on us. Apparently, two of the backing vocalists on it were Sonny and Cher. (laughs) Sonny worked for Phil Spector anyway, quite a lot. Back then, he was there with Cher in the studio, just hanging about, and Phil Spector turned round because he was expecting Darlene Love to come in and be one of the backing singers, as she often was, and she hadn't shown up and Mm -hmm. they'd been waiting for a while. Cher said in an interview she was just hanging out with them in the studio and Darlene didn't turn up, and Philip looked at her and just turned around really crankily and just said, apparently Sonny says you can sing. Get out there and do it. (laughs) wow oh my gosh that's amazing there's a future star on that's singing back up absolutely record amazing bonnie joe mason at the time yes all right at number 39 uh the everly brothers with girl who sang the blues A Barry Mann and Cynthia Wilde song. I didn't care for this. I just didn't think it showed off their harmonies that well. And I just think it was them trying to sound poppy. I like their signature country-ish sound, that more Nashville kind of sound. Now, yeah, they were trying to sound current, having the bro building songwriters work their magic. But I just didn't think this suited them. That's just... My view. I liked it a little bit better than you did. I think you're right. I think they're better off when they're doing the country thing. I thought the harmonies were actually pretty good here, better than they'd been in some of the other Everly Brothers singles that we've seen on the charts over the last year. Mm. You know, they'd been a little bit off. You know, we've seen like two other Everly Brothers songs, I think, to this point. And this was probably the best of those three to yeah. my ears. Yeah. yeah. I guess I just wanted to hear more. I mean, they, the harmonies weren't bad. I just wanted to hear more. You know, and I just felt like this didn't exactly like showcase them. That's that's how you know, that's how I felt. But the, but oh no, the harmonies weren't bad at all. It's the Everly Brothers. Yeah, but with me, I'm like, just give me more. <laughs> that other British duo, the one that's not Peter and Gordon, uh, Chad and Jeremy would actually do a cover of the song a couple years down the line. Wow. All right, at number forty, "Fools Rush In" by Rick Nelson. At number forty-three. Here's our buddy with his next single, Mule Train. It would go up from number 43 to number 25 and number 26. Piano really kind of surprised me. Well, first of all, it would be a toppermost, the poppermost without Frank Ifield. So relieved. We had Confessin' in the charts earlier. Yeah, Yeah, we did, but we only got to mention him, you know, so we have a song we can talk about. This is a classic cowboy song. I mean, you know, this, 
dates back to 1947. The Western Writers of America chose it as one of the top 100 Western songs of all time. So yeah, it was interesting to start it out with a piano. And he's not really yodeling that much. No, he's, he's more restrained on, on this song. He's focusing more on the lyric. There's a buck up to and the buck up for a minor in Corona. And there's a guitar for a cowboy way out in Arizona. And there's a dress so calico for a pretty little Navajo. An old West wagon driver and, you know, spurring on his team of mules pulling a delivery wagon. Just a real storytelling kind of song. Yeah, my first note on this was, what, no yodeling? As I mentioned to both of you earlier, kind of halfway through the song, it turns into rawhide. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> yeah. You listen to Blues Brothers doing their version of rawhide. It's like, we do both types of music, country and western. And it's like, <laughs> that's what Frank is doing here. I love mm-hmm. that reference. <laughs> All right. At number 47, Guilty by Jim Reeves. We've talked a little bit about how Jim Reeves was much more of a figure on the British charts, and we will see much more of him as we continue. Hugely popular in Britain. This is a classic Nashville sound ballad. Don't punish me for things I didn't do. toward pop than country. No twang here, just the strings and the lush background, the smooth lead vocal, just the classic Nashville sound of the early 60s. And then at number 50, here she is with her premiere on the charts. It's Priscilla White, Silla Black with her cover of Love of the Loved. It would rise from 50 to 40 to 35 through the month of October. There she is, indeed. I mean, we've already said pretty much all we have to say about Scylla for now, but it's nice to see there it is. Yep, exactly. As I mentioned at the top of the show, I was relieved when I read that she said she was disappointed at the jazzy brass sound. I like the original, the Beatles version, a little better. I kind of wish they had toned down the, the brass. <laughs> sounds a little comical at times you know some of those horns with the thing that mutes the horn and check it out here are two of the most common sounds that you can make on trombone when using a pixie mute and plunger combination they are the wah sound and the ya sound i thought that made it sound a little more comical than it should have the brass is a little overdone here i think but she's got a great voice i like the beatles version but as i said before it's a little bit too reliant on the influences paul is doing the elvis thing just a little bit more than he really probably should in certainly in the deca version of love of yeah, love yeah the, the deca version that's his paul ramon voice for sure <laughs> yeah <laughs> All right, the week of October 24th, You'll Never Walk Alone has now jumped to number two. It's jumped 
over She Loves You. She Loves You is at number three. Hello, Little Girl is at number nine. Sugar and Spice from The Searchers is at number 29. At number 33, Elvis's next song, Bossa Nova Baby. Oh, oh boy. Uh. <laughs> I said, take it easy, baby. I worked all day and my feet feel just like lead. You got my shirt tail flying all over the place and the sweat popping out of my head. She said, hey, Bossa Nova Baby, keep on working for the same no time to quit. I can see why John Lennon had kind of fallen off of Elvis a little bit by this point. This is just not a good record. Apologies to Elvis fans. I love Elvis's early stuff. I really do. But I kind of see John's point here. I mean, it's a fun, harmless song. I mean, I'm not saying that, but it's just kind of fluffy. First of all, I'm shocked that it's a Lieber Stoller composition you know this sounds way too poppy for them i'm amazed you mentioned the original to us yes they originally gave the song to a group called tippy and the clovers it was recorded and released in 1962 now if you, and you can look it up on youtube that version does sound a little more like on the r&b side it still has kind of a bossa nova beat but that version definitely sounds a bit more r&b the single went nowhere then, of course, about a year later, they give it to Elvis. And this is definitely more on the poppy side. And I guess, to be fair, this was intended for a film. This was for fun in Acapulco, which has nothing to do with Bossa Nova. <laughs> I know, I'm being picky. At number 40 is Love of the Loved. At number 49, our old friend Del Shannon with Sue's Gonna Be Mine. Again, not my favorite Del Shannon song. No. Sorry, Del Shannon fans, but that falsetto we use is in this. That really annoyed me. Who cares what people say? People say. Let's leave today. I didn't like this song either. <laughs> Good. All right. No, so many mu- much better songs by him. When you mentioned that falsetto, I was just thinking. Is this Dell failing to try and do a Four Seasons? Yeah. Yeah, I can see that very much. Yes, very good point. Nailed it once again. And to go to a good song, (laughs) a good song which unfortunately didn't do much on the charts, at number 50, it's Helen Shapiro with Look Who It Is. It's a little bit poppier than anything else we've had from Helen Shapiro. I think this is kind of like you were saying earlier, her attempt to become a little bit more relevant, which hurts the song a little bit, but it's still a great song. It's a fun song. I mean, it also is representative of the kind of sound that would eventually be replaced by the Beatles and other groups, that poppy sound of the time. But again, she had a great voice. It really shows it here. My favorite part, though, of this song is to see that lip sync she does on the show uh, Ready, Steady, Go, which you can see on YouTube, where she's, quote, singing it to John, George, and Ringo. And it's really funny. I mean, they (laughs) clearly are so fond of her. They're trying to not make this as awkward (laughs) as it could be, because she's, you know, singing this song to them and everything, and they're kind of making faces and just... John in particular is doing the John Lennon 
not quite the cripple thing, but he, he's making he's making some faces, and then she goes around to Ringo, and Ringo puts his head on her shoulder. That's yeah, really that sweet. Was, that was sweet. <laughs> George never really turns around, but he gets down on one knee, and you know, like he's asking her to marry him. It's, it's very cute. So that's fun to watch. And. As we've mentioned previously, the reason Paul was not there, Paul was across the studio getting ready to judge the lip sync contest, which would include one Melanie Coe, the girl who would later be known for She's Leaving Home. I was wondering why he wasn't there. Okay. That's where Paul was. Paul was across the studio. They were getting him ready to judge the contest. History is so weird. (laughs) (laughs) That is very strange. Wow. All right. So we move to the final week of October on the British charts. Halloween 1963. Uh, You'll Never Walk Alone has jumped all the way up to number one. We got a new number one. Another George Martin. Yep. She Loves You also moved up. She Loves You moved back from number three to number two. Mm -hmm. At number 42... Red Sails in the Sunset by Fats Domino, which we have spoken of briefly. I mean, it's one of the Beatles' favorite songs. All right, at number 46, Chubby Checker with What Do You Say? Not What Did I Say, but What Do You Say? Well, you got you have, a, you have to have it grammatically correct. <laughs> oh, baby, don't you think it's really time that you stop running free? I love somebody all the time, but what do you say? It's me, oh, yeah. it's me. Chubby Checker. We'll give him a pass. We don't want to make apologies because, well, turns out that the twist is actually the biggest Billboard song of the 60s. The twist wow. beats out Hey Jude. Wow. My gosh. Wow. But there's, there's no twisting on this song, though, is there? No. <laughs> you cannot ever say Chubby Checker without saying the twist in the same sense. Dad gave me some of his record collection and there was a Chubby Checker album in it and like every song on it, you know, this was like from the early 60s. Every song on it was a variation of the twist. It was hilarious. Like every song. (laughs) And even though the twist is at number one and Hey Jude is at number two, I Want to Hold Your Hand is at number five. So, you know, Beatles got two of the top five. Yeah, that's that's good enough. That's good enough. Exactly. As far as this song goes, it's a bit of a different sound for him. I mean, it's certainly danceable. It's not the twist, but it is a little bit more R&B, I think. Yeah, it's not about a dance, but you can certainly dance to it. Definitely a different sound for him. No bossa nova for Chubby, then. No, the, the, the bossa nova yeah, how, twist. How could, yeah, how could Chubby miss out on, on twisting the bossa nova or the bossa nova twist, you know? Yeah. Bossa nova surfing twist. <laughs> who, who nanny bossa nova surfing <laughs> twist? Just get them all in at once. Just, why only cash in on two trends? We can cash in on all of them. <laughs> We're going to close out the British charts at number 49, 
Busted by Ray Charles, which we mentioned is one of our favorites. And, well, since we're mentioning Ray Charles, we just have to bring in a mention. It's not related to this time. Go on YouTube and look for a Tony Randall TV <laughs> special from 1977. Ray Charles is in it. That's all I'm going to say. You won't regret it. <laughs> he doesn't play Busted, but he no. does play The Long and Windy Road. Yep. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> All right, and then at number 50, Billy J's Bad to Me is falling off the charts. So, All right, so that is the British charts for October of 1963. Uh, not too many surprises, I think. Certainly seeing Scylla here is great. We're glad to see Helen Shapiro, although her time on the charts is coming to an end. Yeah, unfortunately. But we saw some other interesting songs that didn't expect, like If I Ruled the World. Well, Diversity. All right, we will be back soon with the U.S. charts for October of 1963. This month, we are doing another of our Cashbox shows. And again, we will give you a little look at the future, a little bit of spoilers. January of 1964 is going to be another Cashbox show for a reason. We will detail when we get there. See you next time. Take care. Bye, everybody. There was a piece in the NME, a news piece, that said the Top Rank Records, remember when Top Rank had a record label? They introduced an LP series next week that will be called Toppermos. And it's coinciding with their current advertising slogan, Toppermost of the Poppermost. Yes, I thought, they got it from somewhere. They saw that, they must have seen that in either the NME or Record Mirror or Disc, Record and Show Mirror as it was then. And they've taken it from there. They've obviously thought, how stupid that is. How stupid is is one of those phrases that someone, an older person who doesn't understand teenagers, comes up with a slogan that they think is going to be the hip slogan of the month. Toppermost of the poppermost.